the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God will come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but that rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for as much as your gracious, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. So this week I was doing something in the kitchen, and I heard a tremendous racket in the back of the house. And so I went back to investigate, figure out what had gone on. And in our guest room, a, a mirror that we had hung up recently had fallen off and was shattered on the floor. In that moment, you and I did exactly the same thing you would always do. I just got out the broom, cleaned up the mess, threw out the, the shards into the trash, saved the frame, and then took it to the glass shop yesterday to get repaired. That's the way we treat a mess like that. Some things are just uh, too broken to fix, and you just need a new one, right? Some things are just shattered beyond repair, 
And the only answer is to get something that totally replaces it. One of the big things that Jesus is talking about here in this Gospel of Luke that we're in has been the kingdom of God. And that framework, that understanding of kingdom of God is taking on more and more prominence in his teaching. He began his whole ministry talking about the kingdom of God. If you remember his first lesson, his first announcement is repent or change or listen up because the kingdom of God is at hand. Everything that I'm about to do, my whole life, my whole ministry, all my healings and miracles, everything, all my teaching is going to be about this one topic, the kingdom of God. And so that's everything that I'm doing, everything I'm talking about is the kingdom of God. But for us, it can get confusing. We can sort of get misideas or misplaced in what this kingdom of God is really all about. At its heart, what Jesus is talking about is that the kingdom of God is an absolute replacement for something that's totally broken. Something's been totally broken and there needs to be a whole new thing that simply the work of repairing or fixing it or piecing and gluing the shards back together are not going to be adequate. There's a whole new thing that's needed. And yes, this is a big, long passage. I usually don't choose passages this big to talk about. But the reason we have a big sort of rambling passage like this, because it really is only talking about one thing. The one thing Jesus is talking about here is the kingdom of God and how it is an absolute replacement for the kingdoms of the world in which are shattered. And so he's in this long passage laying out, sort of describing like facets, five key things. I don't ever do this. You know that. So those that are you're visiting, like five things. I don't usually do this, but there are five sort of things that are facets of this one thing about the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here. First of all, the kingdom of God is desperately needed. There's an absolute need for it. Two, it's consistently opposed. It's needed, but it's opposed. Then it's also very uniquely offered. The way that the kingdom comes, the way that it's being offered by Jesus and by his followers is pretty unique in comparison to the kingdoms of the world. Also, for it's rejectable. The kingdom of God is not just assured that it's going to be accepted by everybody. The opposition to it will become hardened by some into an absolute rejection of this kingdom. And lastly, and really most importantly, the kingdom is most importantly about joy. Okay? So it's uh, needed, it's opposed, it's uniquely offered, it's rejectable, it's joyful. First of all, the kingdom is needed, verses 1 and 2. Many of us have heard this passage talked about at missions conferences and things like that. The worker, you know, the, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. What I want to highlight today is more the, um, the necessity, the absolute need for the kingdom. The harvest is plentiful because the brokenness extends everywhere. We've been doing an intro to mercy class, and last week we talked about 
what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? And one of the things, so you should come. Next time we offer it, you should come. But one of the things we talk about, the heart of being a Presbyterian is we really believe in the sinfulness of humans. Great news. Yeah, joy, that should be on our bumper stickers, right? Become a Presbyterian because you're so sinful. But that pervasiveness of sin that really frames a lot of our thinking and theology actually is the same thing Jesus is saying here. The harvest is plentiful because the need is everywhere. There's no need-free zone. There's no sin-free zone of human kingdoms. Every kingdom, every empire, every place, every leader, every company, every corporation, every family, every individual, sin has come and damaged that thing, that person, in a way that needs not just repair, it needs a replacement. And so when we say the kingdom of God is needed, what we're saying is that that need is so pervasive. Now this is both good news and bad news. The good news is because there's need everywhere, there is no person, there is no family, there is no area of town, there is no country, there is no empire, there's nothing that does not need this message. And so when Jesus is saying to his followers, pray for God to send workers into this field, he's praying, he's asking us, he's calling us into the glorious mission of going everywhere to every person. There is nobody high or low of any sort of background that does not need the liberating message of a new kingdom because all kingdoms of this world are broken. So the good news to the church is we got a lot of work to do. There's a big market out there. It's called everywhere. Now the challenging news is that we all have to admit a need in order to receive this kingdom. Sometimes when I'm talking about the table, I'll often say, all you need to come to this table is need. <laughs> the hardest step in receiving this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is not intellectual, it's not spiritual, it's not emotional, it's not physical. The only obstacle that truly stands in the way of receiving this kingdom that Jesus is bringing it is, is an admission of our need for it. What stands in the way is our own pride. For the kingdom of God to be needed, all it takes is for us to say, you're right, Jesus. My kingdom is shattered. It's on the floor. It's broken. There's no way for me to glue it back together. Or all the attempts that I have made to glue it back together have only failed. I need something complete and whole. And your offer of it is what I really need. So the kingdom of God is needed. But the kingdom of God is opposed in verse 3. Jesus says, I'm going to send you as sheep among wolves. This is not, again, a very uh, great marketing tool for uh, recruiting followers. Great news. You're sheep, and I'm sending you into the wolves. Great. 
that would be very bad news if there were not a shepherd. So Jesus, as the king who is calling us into his kingdom, is saying, I know what it feels like. It's going to feel like you're a sheep and you're surrounded by a pack of wolves. That there is going to be a pervasive challenge to you on every front. Internal enemies, external enemies, enemies are going to be all around you. That this um, sheep among wolves is understanding that... um, Jesus' way of bringing a kingdom is going to challenge the powers that be, the wolves of the age. They've gotten very accustomed to operating with a certain set of expectations. But my kingdom does not operate on those same set of expectations. And so my kingdom and my people are going to operate in a very different way. It's going to feel like a sheep surrounded by wolves But you need to remember, in my kingdom, there is a shepherd who protects and cares for his sheep. That your feelings aren't what matters in my kingdom. My power is what matters in my kingdom. That the opposition that's coming against you will ultimately be the opposition that comes against me, and I will defeat it. Then there's also the kingdom has unique ways of being offered Unique ways of being offered. Jesus, in this uh, sort of section in verses 4 through 9, begins to lay out sort of the unique and baffling sometimes ways of operating his kingdom versus the expected normal ways that we are schooled in for operating our own lives and businesses and careers. That his way of being challenges that way of being because there are two different kingdoms in conflict. This is the way of sheep. Sheep don't take money. They don't take a knapsack. They don't take extra sandals. They don't greet anybody on the way, but they go exactly to where they were sent to. They stay with people of peace. They don't ask for more or trade up for better accommodations. They heal the sick and they proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, There have been movements throughout church history, and I love church history, where we've gone off on weird tangents, overly applying these letters, these instructions, and it's not exactly what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is a stance of his kingdom is essential, a stance of humility, a stance of listening to the directions of the shepherd, of the king, not of creating our own way, not doing ministry in our own power, not going about his will with our strength, but doing his will in his way. And the way of God, his kingdom, is always against the expectations of our age. The way that God's kingdom will expand is always going to counter the expectations of the way we would normally do things. And the way we would normally do things is by a position of power. And in all these little instructions Jesus is giving his disciples, there are not positions of power that he's asking them to take. He's telling them to take positions of submission. 
submission to his will, humility to God acting, a dependence upon the Spirit to accomplish something, not just their effort and their strength. It's counter to the way of the world. Jesus' kingdom is not the way of the world. So the church, there's a warning for us to avoid the tools of self-aggrandizement and pursuing humility over against worldly attainment. There's also, for all of us, the recognition that the kingdom of God, when it truly comes, is going to challenge our lifestyles. It's going to reorder our understanding of how power is administered in the world. If you've ever gone to another country, if you've ever gone to a place where things are different, you can carp and complain all you want about the side of the road people are driving on. It is not going to change until you submit to the realities of that kingdom. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is steeped in humility. And my people will be people of humility and peace not of self-aggrandizement and pride. That is the way of the Gentiles, not the way of the king. Also, the kingdom can be rejected. Verses 10 through 16, what we begin to see is that one of God's characteristics is that although he's all-powerful, he uses his wisdom and his grace to call us into his kingdom. He does not coerce. He woos us. He does not coerce or drag us into his kingdom. Yet our rejection of his offer is real. We can really reject the gracious offer of his kingdom. And what this passage is saying in some terrifying detail is that those consequences of rejection are real. Do you notice God is not necessarily punishing directly these places, these towns. Jesus is simply pointing out there are real consequences for rejection. There are things that will flow to you by operating against my kingdom. If you choose the kingdom of the world, you are choosing a kingdom that ends in death, not a kingdom that ends in life. There's a lot of interesting and all kinds of uh, side tracks and trails through this passage here. But what I want you to really see is that there is only one kingdom that leads to what you want. That the pathways of this world are only going to, as this passage says, Hades or death. Life is being offered. Uh, There was another in the Old Testament, Moses, when he was speaking to the people, he lays out the law. He lays out the law to them and he says, today I'm laying before you life and death. One way, one kingdom, and the kingdom that you were coming out of. Slavery and freedom. Today I urge you, choose life, is what Moses said. And the power of that choice is what is being here said by Jesus. There's one way of life, and this is it. The kingdom of God, ultimately, though, in verse 17 through 24, is joyful. 
This is a passage that's oftentimes used for a lot of odd kind of end-time prophecy stuff. But I want you to see the telos, the point, the direction of this whole passage about this Jesus' teaching on the kingdom is really about joy. The disciples returned to Jesus joyful. Jesus, the demons even submit. Now, Jesus never told them to cast out demons. <laughs> they sort of went on their own, like, okay, I guess we got a new way of being. Let's try it. We saw Jesus do it. And they submit in Jesus' name. They are endowed with power that's borrowed from Jesus. And that borrowed power has genuine impact on their world. And they're rejoicing, coming back to Jesus, about the experience of borrowing Jesus' power and seeing it effective change in their world. They're, they're ecstatic. This worked. And do you notice what Jesus does here? He takes their joy, and he doesn't crush it. He takes their joy and actually shows them a deeper joy. He says, rejoice not that the demons submit, as great as that is. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What Jesus is saying is my kingdom, the heart of my kingdom, is about this knowledge of joy, that your names are written in heaven. Now, he mentions Satan or Satan here. And one of the things is we know about this name is it refers to the aspect of evil that is the accuser of God's people. The one who comes in private thoughts and in public moments and accuses us, that tells our conscience, you're not worthy. God could never love you. Look at what you've done. Look at all your sins. You claim to be a follower of Jesus. Look how nasty you are with your mom or your dad. Look how ugly you are in business. That's the voice of the accuser. You know that voice. You hear it on a daily basis. That is Satan. That is Satan coming to accuse you. And Jesus is saying, here's what my kingdom is fundamentally at its heart about. Your names are written in heaven. I have defeated that enemy. I've seen him fall. I know he is crushed. His power is only the power of his tongue. What is secured and unalterable and absolutely unable to change is that my sheep are secure. Your names are written in heaven. Where are your names written in heaven? Now, remember a few weeks ago, Jesus has been talking about his cross as the, the most important thing that's about to happen. At that cross, Jesus will be wounded. He will be speared in the side. He will have nail imprints in his arms and feet. And when he reappears to his disciples in the resurrection, in the closed upper room, He's absolutely glorified. He's perfected in his form. He is no longer just a human. He is now God and human absolutely welded together in an eternal form. 
God, the second person of the Trinity, has forever now taken on human flesh. Where are your names written? In heaven. They are written on his side. They are written in the scars on his hands and in his feet. The reason Jesus bears scars in heaven, because that is us. Our names are written in his flesh so that forever no one can ever take his people away from him. His reign is so secure. Your salvation is so permanent that it's written on to the person of Jesus himself. And that's joyful. That comes against the voice of the accuser. That defeats all enemies. And that empowers us as his people to bear anything this world can hurl at us. COVID, hurt, slander, accusations, difficulty, physical, mental, emotional. We can bear all of them because our names are written in heaven. The kingdom that Jesus is preaching is desperately needed. It's consistently opposed. It's uniquely offered. It's foolishly rejected, but it's fundamentally joyful. How do we respond? We all know when we find a mirror broken on our floor, what to do. It's in a thousand pieces, um, and what we all know is that we just need a new mirror. There's no way to sort of piece it together. In fact, if we try to piece it together, we'll all end up with cut fingers and frustration. That's what we're doing with the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world that you and I live in day by day is simply a sad attempt to craft a way of life that works, but it's a shattered thing. And here Jesus is saying, my kingdom is complete. My kingdom is here. My kingdom is for you. My kingdom is yours for simply the receiving of it. The answer is not a better strategy for fixing a hopelessly broken thing. The answer is simply receiving a new kingdom and entering into a new way of being following our Savior. For the Christians in the room, for those that have united with Christ, acknowledged your need at some point in your life and started stepping into following through baptism and through maybe trying to follow Jesus, there's deep encouragement here for you. There's deep encouragement that this challenge of following is simply the challenge we've already done in our worship service, repenting and believing. Acknowledging we get misinformation. We take wrong steps. We get stuck in the kingdom of trying to cobble together a broken thing. And all we need to do in order to change and to follow is simply set that aside, throw it away, and receive the kingdom that Jesus is giving us. And as we receive the kingdom that Jesus is giving us, we step into his power. We step into his joy. 
We step into knowing our identity is secured eternally because of his work for us. And because of that, we can then move out in humility into the world. We can take the posture of sheep among wolves because we know that the sheep win. The wolves will be destroyed. The sheep will be victorious in this kingdom of God that is coming. And so simply this work of changing is a work of setting aside what is broken and receiving what is whole. For those of us who are looking in or considering faith for the first time, this is the same step. In fact, this is the secret of the Christian life. There's not like a special sauce or secret information, but this work of repentance and change is just what it is. And so to step in is simply to begin to move and say, I have a need. I cannot craft or create my own kingdom. And so instead, I will simply receive what you have given me. I need my name secured eternally in the side of Jesus. I need to know that my identity is secured and not up for grabs every day. There are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of broken shards. And there are people of that kingdom that are relentlessly trying to piece those broken shards together. And it's a fool's errand. And then there's the kingdom of light that is given, that reflects perfectly the glory of God and the good news of our redemption and salvation in Jesus. There are two kingdoms today. Today, choose life. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you and we pray that you would bring your kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make that prayer reality right now in all of our lives. That we would choose your kingdom. That we would step into it. That we would be freed from the shackles of the old way into the liberating joy of knowing that our names are written in heaven. Amen.